You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Gracious Father, thank you for, uh, for this day, for your mercies and your grace. Renewed each morning, do pray for, for those that need you in every way, um, that you would tend to them with your gracious care. Um, now, Lord, uh, humble Humble me uh, as we approach your living and active word and let your promise um, shine forth uh, as the gospel. Um, uh, Let your work be done in your way, never lacking for any needed thing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So just to set the stage, it's good to see everybody. Um, I am really enjoying um, Romans passing somebody this morning. You know, kind of broke this this barrier a few years ago. you know, I think you're probably not supposed to have a favorite book of the Bible, right? You're supposed to say, I like them all, you know, and that's true. Um, the Bible, the whole counsel of God, but boy, Romans, I mean, this is just where, where my heart beats in so many different ways. Um, um, a nugget that I like to start with each week as we're coming in, um, thinking about um, a conviction and then amplifying that as it goes forth. We're all theologians. Um, You know, I've said that before. I didn't make this up. I'm tattling other people. But to amplify that a little bit, we're all theologians. Human beings are theologians as they come out created in the image of God. Um, uh, So by by a matter of conviction, every every person who ever lived in the history of the world, that's a big statement. Um, Every person who ever lived uh, in the history of the world comes out as a theologian whether they know it or not. This is not anything to do with a professional degree, whether they trade their time for money, doing something like what I'm doing, um, or something like what Mark Ginolette does, or something else like that. A theologian is one who suffers and lives under the Word of God. That word suffer is a word that I'm really sort of trying to highlight. In some ways, when we do Romans, um, we're going back to our ABCs. We're just relearning words, um, because that's what Paul takes great pains, especially today. We're going to hear about the word promise, and he's going to really upend our understanding of gift, um, grace, which is the same word, uh, charis, where we get the word charismatic or charism. Hello, Rachel. Um, uh, So we're all theologians, and for those who have been given faith, um, which comes as a gift, there's that word again, so that none of us may boast, we're all Christian theologians, asking questions like, you know, what does it all mean? Um, Who am I? Who is God and what has God done? And what is in the downstream of that? What's the consequence of that? So we're all theologians suffering uh, beneath the word of God, suffering in the sense of our passivity. Uh, We're in the receptive position. Christians, the Christian life is the receptive life. I'm going to say that probably every week. We suffer God and we suffer God's word. We receive it. We're under it. It does its work on us. One thing that means just to unfold that just a little bit. Um, When somebody asks you the question, who are you? Or when you ask the question, who am I? Um, Not necessarily like in a job interview. I've just done some of those. Uh, uh, Tell me about yourself. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that when you're doing it, but when you're in the, the quiet of the night or whatever it is and you ask the question, who am I? Very specifically, I don't know why this moves me the way it does. You are the one whom God addresses and says, Behold, I am the Lord your God. That's who you are. 
You are the one who says to whom God speaks and says, I am your God. I have brought you out of slavery. I have raised you from the grave. I am the one who has done my work on you. I am the one who brings you into existence only through his word. We're going to center up to that in Romans 4.17. I am the one who receives God's love as he is the subject and I am the object, which is our working definition of faith for this class. That faith is the experience of being loved, specifically being loved in Christ who gave himself up for us an offering and sacrifice unto God, um, or who gave himself over, in the language of Romans 4 where we are today, uh, who was crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. Who are you? You are the one to whom God addresses in the second person singular. You, not even y'all, you, you, you. You are my beloved with whom I am well pleased. You, uh, I am the Lord, your God. The gospel prologue, as it were, before he gives his other words, what we call the commandments, the Ten Commandments. Behold, I am the Lord, your God. Um, And just to let that continue to be the word which does its work, who brings um, life to the dead and brings into existence the things that were not, um, that did not exist, Romans 4.17, which is what we're going to read in just a moment. But, like I've said before, (coughs) last week, last two weeks, um, I hit the principle of extension. Um, Gosh, it's warm in here, isn't it? Sorry. Um, uh, That... Paul, especially in Romans, but, but just you know, the Bible, even say that, but Paul brings it out in a particular way. We don't simply extend what we know is good here and then run it out and say that must be what God is. So human power is this. Wow, God's power must be mega. Human wisdom is this. God's wisdom must be that. Human order and logic and intelligence is this. God's must be that. He wants to say, no, it's not that. The way of God is usually by negation or um, something against the opposite. Um, That's a Luther phrase. So something like what we would call wisdom, Paul wants to say, well, to God, that's folly. And what we would say is folly, God will say, no, no, that's my wisdom. Um, We would say, that's a preeminent example of weakness. And God says, there, there I'm going to exhibit my strength. And that's going to be his idea of gift. So that's our preface. We're just going to start pulling some of these these themes together. So with that, remembering where we were last week, um, where Paul in 321, where he comes through, and if you have a Bible, you can go through. He goes through the great litany in the back half of Romans 1, all of Romans 2, and the first part of Romans 3, ending with that mashup from the Psalms mostly in a few other places. You know, our throats are open graves. No one of us are righteous. No, not one. All the, the litany of sin And we are waiting at that point where the word is doing its work, the hammer of God breaking us into pieces. And we're we're, we're hanging on the word, so to speak. Uh, What's what's he going to say in Romans 3.21? Is it going to be something like Romans 12.1, where he says, Therefore, in view of all this, get busy. Um, That's going to be, we're going to draw that distinction out in in a different way in, in, in the back half of today's class. In Romans 3.21, he doesn't say, therefore. He doesn't say, moreover. He doesn't say, and this extended out, like in that principle of extension. He comes in with a great, you know, funny word, a contrastative. And he wants to say, there's all that, 
And now contrast it to this. But now, a righteousness from God has been revealed um, apart from the law. And he's starting to say this is a different thing. And where we were last week is Paul's sense of time. Where in Romans 2, I was pointing ahead to the TV, he said, here, from now until there, the day of judgment, the day of wrath, that's going to be called, um, Paul would say, a, um, a time of his kindness and patience and forbearance. But you're storing up wrath for yourselves. Mark yourselves. Watch out. Ordinary righteousness would say, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what, you're, what you deserve. And that day of wrath is coming. But now, a righteousness from God has been revealed. Now it's in the past tense. On the timeline, it's back there towards the door. And he starts to speak in the sense, you know, and nobody else was saying this. The day of judgment has already come. It happened on the hill outside of Jerusalem. You know, looked like the shape of a skull or whatever that was. And the day of judgment has already happened. And the rest of the letter of Romans, I think this is a big statement, but it's true, um, unfolds the implication of what it means that our day in court which before was coming, you're going to get tried, there's going to be a judgment, there's going to be the wrath, there's going to be the reckoning. No. Now, God has done something different, and it's behind you. Your day in court has passed, and the judge has already said, that ungodly thing, I declare it righteous. I declare it okay. I declare it acceptable. And that folly that a judge, that's not a good judge. What judge would say, I've heard the facts, I know exactly what happened, you were guilty, your tongue is an open grave, your blood is on your hands, um, the tape saw you, you know, eyewitness, you admitted it, everything is against you. And I tell you this, your judgment, not guilty. Your judgment, okay, acceptable, because it's already happened. And the rest of a letter, he wants to unfold the implications of what it means to live with judgment behind us. So that's where we've been. Um, so let's read um, Romans 4. I've got lots of paper. Let me get the right ones. Um, I don't think we're even going to try to extend into Romans 5. But in view of all that, remembering where we were in Romans 3, um, with the, uh, the great shift, and Paul means to do it. Paul is a feeler, if you want to call it that. I mean, he, he wants to bring out the emotion. I mean, he, he himself, you know, bleeds all over his page, you know, well, if we ever make it to Romans 9, um, the height of the heights where he says, you know, nothing and no thing shall ever separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. You think, well, that's the end of the letter, right? And then Paul goes on and he says, I wish that I were cut off so that my kinfolk would be saved. He just goes in and just starts weeping on the page. I mean, he just starts feeling everywhere. So Paul's all over the place there. And he means, he means to really bring us to that emotional high point in Romans 3, at the end of Romans 3, with the but now, and it just unfolds in a very, very dense five verses. And then he starts this with a new section in Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? And so now he introduces Abraham, um, uh, our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
and then skipping a little bit down to verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he, was consider- when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was already about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness, better, or deadness, of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver according to the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Dense, dense, dense. I know it's difficult to to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this. So slowing down, taking a few things, um, not doing exposition verse by verse, word by word, syllable by syllable, but trying to take some larger chunks and see where we're coming from here. Uh, Abraham. So what we're going to be doing is uh, asking the question, now that Paul is unfolding the question, uh, what's it like? living with judgment behind you rather than in front of you, like double jeopardy or something else like that, where you can't be tried for the same crime twice. Um, What's it like to experience that kind of freedom uh, where now it's behind you and as you move forward? And he starts with saying, here's how we're going to read our Bibles. Um, For Paul, the Bible, of course, would have been the Old Testament. You know, know, trained by Gamaliel, uh, Genesis through Malachi was his water, that's what he drank, that's what he knew. And now he wants to start reading it in an entirely different way. The way Paul presents Abraham here is not the way anybody else was beginning to, was, 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 was uh, describing Abraham. If you remember the Tower of Babel, David brought this out last week. In Genesis 11, all of a sudden at the end of Genesis 11, Abram is introduced. And then all of a sudden in Genesis 12, Abram is described as the one upon whom God is going to give his promise. <coughs> the promise that, you know, look out and see the stars in the sand, so shall your offspring be. And then he also speaks with the word dead. That's why um, it's in the ESV footnote and the other footnotes where it talks about Sarah's barren womb. The word is actually her dead womb. You know, it's necrosis. Um, we get that word this dead womb, and I think it's important to kind of highlight that because Paul wants to say four times, and we're going to look at that, um, talking about how God, thank you, Steve, um, God raises the dead. Um, that Moses, I mean, Abraham was as good as dead because he's 100. Sarah's womb was as good as dead because she was 90. Um, uh, uh, God uh, raises the dead and, and um uh, and calls into the existence the things that do not exist. And then, he, and then he ties the promise to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and said, because he delivered him over to his death and raised him from the dead for our justification, that word which Paul keeps pulling around. So he keeps pulling these words here where he wants to take Abraham and say, not this, but that. And so we'll start with Romans 4. 
um, Romans 4.4. Now to the one who works, his wages, you could say his reward, is not counted to him as a gift, but as his due. Um, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. What's Paul doing here? This takes a little bit of sort of background. It sounds obvious to us, I think, because we're conditioned by Paul to understand, well, of course, you know, that's not what Paul means by a gift and grace. That's what everybody else meant, that when somebody wanted to give a gift, they actually looked out um, and said, who's a fitting recipient of this gift? Because I don't want to take this thing that has value and just throw it away, as Jesus would say, like a pearl before swine, and just get rid of it. And so there were lots of places in the Greco-Roman world and also in the Jewish world, you know, one specifically which described the, um, the exodus where Moses was brought over and a, a teaching came up around it and was like, why did God pull um, uh, reward Israel through the Red Sea? But because they were fitting, uh, and they described the whole narrative of why they were a fitting recipient of that gift. And they wanted to say exactly because they were worth it. They had merit. They got looked at it, evaluated, made a judgment just to come, ordinary righteousness, we talked about that the first week, and said, yep, that's my people. Um, Paul wants to say that's not how we read our Bibles in light of the cross, which has now happened and is behind us. We don't look, and this is Santa Claus. I mean, here we are, Advent 1. Who does Santa give good gifts to? The good boys and girls, the nice, because he has a list and the naughty don't get it and the nice do. And so Santa enters into a social contract with every child who ever lived (laughs) and said, you know, I am looking for fitting recipients for your gifts, for the gifts which my elves have made, and I'm going to give them to you. Same idea. And that's not even like a bad thing. I mean, if you have a car and you want to give it away, um, you know, this is what I've, I've done this before, looking for getting rid of my dad's car when I was doing that. You know, get online, you look for a good nonprofit that they're going to do something right with it. They're going to make sure it goes to a needy, a deserving person, somebody that's going to actually appreciate the gift, the car. You know, you're looking for this, you know, this fittingness, a congruency, as John Barclay calls it. And then Paul wants to undo everything and say, that's not how God works. Again, the principle of extension is now being, you know, uh, severed. And Paul is reintroducing. And just to go back and realize the, the magnitude and the shift, the radicality, whatever word you want to put on it, to say that, that what Paul is doing here is so seismic. Nobody else, because it was a revelation from God, a revelation from heaven. Um, in the language of, I think that's 118. Um, it was new. It wasn't recycled old. It was actually new. Uh, and so he says, now to the one who works, his reward is, you, you would have expected, is counted as a gift. And he says, it's not counted as a gift, but as is due to the one who does not work, to the ungodly. That's about as strong as word as he could pull up here. Who justifies the ungodly. And that's where we're going next week, if I can ever make it to, to, uh, to chapter 5. He's going to amplify the, the, the consequences of what it means that God is working in this way. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Righteousness. So let me hit pause there. Comments there or thoughts? And then we're going to move into what I think is just a melodic word, melogidzomai. And I'm going to say why I think it is that. Um, 
But this, this idea that one who does not work, but who is ungodly, God's going to say, aha, there's the one. Not fitting. Absolutely incongruent with the way that we would have seen it. Not in line with the principle of extension, but 180 degrees opposite. Um, in the middle of his ungodliness, I'm going to enter in and say, you are my beloved with whom I am well pleased. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. I am standing over your grave and calling you forth. Come out. Come out. You know, rise, O sleeper, and wake. Um, What's that? And then, what exactly? And what's our working definition of faith? One who is loved by God. Um, uh, And so faith, which comes as a gift, so that no man may boast, Ephesians, or faith cometh by hearing, Romans 10, hearing the gospel, the word of Christ. And so it's going to tie all this up. And he is going to go, if you're tracking, people are going to start, I hope you're wondering, it's like, where are the works? I mean, where are we supposed to do something? You know, I hope, I hope you're asking that, because Paul certainly is. He's going to say, what should we say then? This is a good idea. You know, Paul likes ungodly people. Ungodly people sin. So what should we say? Should we sin, and sin more so that grace may abound? By no means. No, couldn't be more strong. But how do we get those? That's, again, what Paul is unfolding and what life with judgment behind us actually looks like and produces. So I do want to hang some tension there. We're going to get there in January or February. Right, we're going, but that's what it is. So, Dave, are you going to say something? I don't know what the article is in the 39 articles, but even our good works are sin. Absolutely, yeah. And that's the, I guess it's more Yeah. So 12, 13, 14, you know, definition of good works, to, yeah. Yeah. Proclaim that surely we're doing something. Yep, yep. So I'll throw this out. Richard and I were talking about this over Thanksgiving. I think we were. Um, you know, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, says a lot in 5 and 6 about good works. Um, good works aren't bad. You just don't know you're doing them. You know, they should be hidden from you. Uh, because what does he say? So let your light shine before, um, so others may see your good work. And do what? Come up and give you a pat on the back. No. So they may glorify your Father who art in heaven. Um, so your works are, you don't know it if they have that sense of, of faith which is, expresses itself as love. A good work is synonymous with love. And so you're asking the question, how do you love? We love because we were first loved. Faith is the experience of being loved. That's how all this is going to start to really sort of get tight and be tied. And so we're going to repeat, 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 repeat. Um, Logizomai. Um, uh, funny word, but every time, every time, and, more, and, and Romans 4 is the place in the Bible where you're going to read this, uh, this word more than any others, where it says um, counted, reckoned, um, accounted, uh, all these English words um, which describe the theological concept of imputation, which we're going to talk about. I'm actually going to sort of bore you for a minute, but I think it's actually pastorally very keen. Um, all these have the word logizomai, which is a verb. Like English, we can do this with some of our nouns. You can take nouns and make them into verbs. And some of y'all, you've heard me talk on this, so you know exactly what, what's the noun that's in the verb logizomai. You might know, Margo? Logos. Sorry, didn't mean to pull you out. Logos, word. 
in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was God, and the Logos was with God. Without the Logos, nothing was made that had been made. Sounds a lot like Romans 4, 17, doesn't it? Brings into existence things that did not exist. How did the Word do its work? It's spoken. There in Genesis 1, in John 1, and also in Hebrews 1, the Word of God is the creative Word of God, which brings into existence the things that did not exist. The Gospel, which brings life to the dead, the gospel delivered at the grave of Lazarus, for instance, or will be at the funeral tomorrow. I'll see many of you there. Um, and the gospel will go forth, and it will show the eternal life that is ours, that is secured in us through Christ's death and resurrection. We'll, we'll weep there. Um, the gospel, the creative, powerful, life-giving, faith-engendering, loving word of God has been made verb. This is totally Fitzsimmons Allison for some of y'all. Know. One of my theological heroes, Fran Cade's uncle. Um, the word was made verb and was done to us. Um, Logizomai, logos, we've been worded unto faith. Um, love the way you can turn that around where it says, and it was worded to him as righteousness. It was counted to him as righteousness. I actually kind of think, you know, if we're going to write a you know, an Advent translation. That's how we should write Romans 4. And it wouldn't be completely wrong. I've asked some of my New Testament friends. Um, and it was worded unto him as righteousness. This idea of logizomai, where it's imputed. Now I'm totally off my notes. Let me see where I want to go with this. Um, uh, let's do, in a little early. Um, I don't know about that. Um, so what's the, why does this matter when he's talking about Abraham and his faith was credited to him as righteousness? It was a righteousness not by works, not by something he did, not by something he thought, not by something that he knew, but it was sort of hidden from him. Um, oh, Steve. Yep. <laughs> and the word, you know, brings darkness over the deep, um, and it hovered. Um, so that was great, Steve. That was just right, just right. So um, I was like, I think I'm having a stroke. Somebody call somebody. Um, so, stick out your tongue, Steve. Um, I know, I know. I'm with you. I'm with you, Henry. I know what you mean. I was like, this is it, Weezy. I'm going. This is the big one. Um, um, <laughs> Let's get back to logizomai, um, the word made verb, and which not only dwelt among us, but did itself to us. Um, uh, we, word imputation, um, uh, out of the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, and many others that came out of that, um, in some ways this was the hinge, part of the hinge in which the whole door turned, because it was over and against the idea of uh, Christ infused his righteousness into us. Um, in the same way that we can go to the hospital now and get an infusion of some sort of therapy or a blood infusion or something else like that, it's the idea that Christ infused his righteousness into us and we are made something that we weren't before, which sounds just right. Out of, say, 2 Corinthians 5, and Christ, um, who knew no sin, um, was made to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so how do we do that? Well, obviously, um, uh, Christ's righteousness somehow becomes our righteousness, and they built a system around. This was people like um, Thomas Aquinas and Duns Scotus, and then later, 
what we sometimes, what I learned in the eighth grade is the Counter-Reformation, um, the Council of Trent, they reaffirm this, it's still official Roman Catholic teaching, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think it just makes sense to us, this idea that somehow Christ's righteousness, this thing that we need in order to be saved. So again, we're not just staying up there in terms of, um, of, uh, of theology. I mean, this, this thing which we need done to us when Christ is going to do that thing which he most does whenever it means when we're being saved. Um, it's not infused where it goes into us and now this infection of our nature, again the articles would call it that, the ninth article on sin, um, uh, this infection of our nature, you could say, well you have a blood infusion, Christ's blood was shed for you, and then that part of that blood shed for you was infused into you, and now that infection has been defeated. And so you can then go forth, and God is going to recognize, you see how this starts to turn together, your fittingness for his good gifts of grace, um, that Christ died for you, and how would he know that? Because your blood is now mingled with Christ's blood or something else like that. Your righteousness has now been part, merged with his righteousness in some sort of infusion or even impartation, uh, and, and you are no longer you. You are now... Christ, Him, His righteousness brought to you. Here's the problem with that. When the day of judgment comes, um, or when the day of judgment passes, and you come through the second advent, and Christ looks down, or He meets you on His white horse, faithful and true, um, uh, what then do you look at? He says, you know, what's your basis of righteousness? What's your basis of acceptability? What's your basis of, I'm okay for admission? through the pearly gates, as you want to call it that. Um, some part of that would say fully within um, uh, the... It would say, look to yourself and see that your virtues have changed and that you have become Christ-like enough, conformed in his image and likeness, in order to become acceptable. That's infusion. Some of y'all would smell that out and say, like, I don't think that's what we hear. Gill's class or around here or whatever else. Because imputation, where Christ is worded to us, uh, tells a different story. And it goes something like this. If the word becomes verb and does itself to us, this word which was around at the beginning in Genesis 1 and which John then recognizes is the, uh, uh, the word which was made flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth and who made... God the Father known because this word was in his bosom since the beginning before time uh, or this word of power which upholds the universe which is how the writer of Hebrews would describe it all these being the same word which then becomes a verb and does itself to us and it stays outside of us always and forever doing its work on us as Paul would say in his thesis statement in 1 16 and 17 from faith to faith from the beginning until the end, the end either of our earthly life, um, when my heart stops beating and I meet Christ, or until he comes again. From faith to faith, this word outside of us, which logizomize, which words itself to us over and over and over again, we are counted as righteous. And here's the strengthening part of that. I'm going to go back one more time and then we'll end. Um, and what this means is, if I can explain this right, um, it's not simply, and interesting enough, it was in Romans 13 in our, our reading today. Um, uh, often we'll hear the, the, the image of, of being robed in the righteousness of Christ, which is a 
perfectly beautiful image. And it approaches it, but Paul wants to leave it there. Because if it was just robed in the righteousness of Christ, um, what if it was disrobed and all that? I mean, you go stretch the metaphor, and Paul uses a metaphor and strengthen it some other ways. Because when we are imputed as righteous, God doesn't count us as a fiction and just say, well, I'm going to say that what is in Christ's account, I'm going to transfer to Gill's. And I'm just going to act like, even though I know what's real, I'm going to act like, you know, uh, what Christ has done, I'm going to sort of, you know, impute, as it were, and put that on Gill's account. I know Gill owes me a million dollars, but I'm going to say he's a million in surplus. Um, We don't get Christ's benefits. We don't just get his robes. We don't just get um, the good things about Christ that go over and against us. What do we get when we're imputed, when we're worded as, which is why imputation in that sense, as an accounting term, is too weak a word. We actually get Christ. We don't just get his benefits. We don't get what he did for us uh, on the cross, and that work is transferred to our account. We actually get him. Christ, who is our righteousness. He is your sanctification, your wisdom, your justification. Uh, uh, Christ, who is your life. Christ is yours. The content of the gospel is always Christ. And when God sees us and words us as righteous, it's not just that he's transferring something from Christ's account to ours. He's actually transferring Christ to you. And somehow... We have access to the Father through Christ who now has looked at us, which is why we don't have to cross our fingers and say, well, I know he really doesn't think of me this way. When Christ, when God sees you, the Father, because judgment is behind, and now he looks at you, he says, like, I know him. He's mine. He's beautiful. As far as the east is from the west, so far has sin been removed from him. When he sees us, that's all he sees. When he sees us, he sees the same things that he sees as his son. Now going back, why does that matter in the pastoral implications? Let me see if I can pull this off. Because if it's not true, if it was something like infusion, then it'd be my job, and I actually wrote this out because I don't think I could do this on my own. Um, It'd be my job to sort of stand here and say something like this. I had to put my coach's hat on a little bit, not the the little coaches, I was a coach once. Uh, but try to sort of stir you up every Sunday to kind of get you ready. I can see your face. I'm with you. Um, To kind of, you know, have it be enough. And it would be something like this. Look at yourselves. If you were infused with the righteousness of Christ, if now some of what Christ was is now in you, and your basis for righteousness, you would say, is, well, it's in me, like it's in my body. You know, look at yourselves. Take an honest stock and see how the infused righteousness of Christ is making a difference in your life. Are you better than you were yesterday? If yes, thank God and do it again. (laughs) And if not, well, then whose fault is that? Uh, I'm not going to stand here and say that the infused righteousness of Christ is inadequate for the task, so that leaves one option. Um, What are your habits? What what are your habits? What are your virtues? What are your works? What are your thoughts? Look to Christ no longer. He has done what he needs to do. Look to yourselves. Bend in, navel gaze, whatever you want to call it, Take a serious inventory and consider again your call to a devout and holy life. What are you doing with the precious gift that has been given to you to make yourself worthy of his love, a fitting guest vessel?
for his precious gift. And I want to stop and say something. This is the natural way we, we, we move through the world. Like I said at the beginning, we're all theologians, and we default to our natural state, to the world, to the flesh, um, uh, which uh, sin delights in. It infects the flesh, this infection of nature, and then it works itself out. This makes sense to that fleshly nature. And, and, and Paul wants to say, but now, <laughs> something else, and this has to be unmade every day as the word stays outside of us and continues to do this. So going back in here, because even as I read it, I'm like, mm, I can't even read it out loud. Because it would be something like this. You once were a sinner, but you best not think of yourself that way any longer. You have a new word to describe you, and that's when with an infusion of divinity of God himself. You are not a sinner, though you may sin. You now have the power to choose the good, refuse the evil. Let your behavior and thought match the good deposit which is in you. Run the race, Christian. Stand up and be counted, soldier of the Lord. You are what you eat. You have eaten the flesh and the blood of God. You have been infused with the very righteousness of Christ. The blood in your veins no longer carries the original infection of sin and flesh. Stop acting sick. Put down your fear and begin a life which matches your new nature and leave behind your learned helplessness. What clothes do you wear? You are not a tawdry slave, but a dignified son of the master of the house. Act like you belong here and remember the name you bear. For when God looks at you, he will know what he did for you. I can almost cry. I can't say these words and mean it. But you hear this. He will know what he did for you. What have you done for him? To make him count you worthy of being a son and invited to the banquet table of God. That is not true. But now a righteousness apart from the law has been revealed. And something like this is the word spoken. These are all just Luther quotes for whatever that matters because he's the one I have to think through. Instead of that exhortation to be fitting vessels of Christ infused or imparted righteousness, which is now in your veins, in your members, in your, uh, in your blood, sweat, and tears, so that now your works really aren't hidden from you, that you should go out and do them. Instead of that, something like this. Um, my faithful request and admonition is that you join our company and associate with us, who are real, great, and hard-boiled sinners which means uh, you must by no means make Christ to be seen pretty and trivial to us, as though he could be our helper only when we want to be rid of from imaginary, nominal, and childish sins. No, that would be no good for us. Christ must rather be a savior and redeemer from real, great, grievous, and damnable transgressions and iniquities, in brief, from all sins added together in a grand total. You want to be a painted sinner, like makeup, um, and accordingly expect to have Christ as a painted Savior. You will have to get used to the belief that Christ is a real Savior and you are a real sinner. Before you are saddened, you are afflicted, and you have been led into hell by the law and your black cholera that torments you. But do not despair. There is a rhubarb. That's another story. There is a rhubarb that is by far and best, namely Christ. Lay hold of him and you will live. So I'm going to hit pause there. Um, maybe time for a question or two. Um, and then we are going to go to Romans 5 next week, um, uh, which is just, I mean, Romans 5.1. This is, when I come to the 5, this is why I come to the 5 o'clock service. Matt did this uh, as the closing benediction. Um, Therefore, 
in view of, of Romans 4 being worded, the word became verb and did itself to us. Therefore, in view of this, you have peace with God and are justified by his grace. Um, what a word. What a word. Um, so, questions? Yeah. Yeah, Clark. Since I was a Trinitarian faith, and we were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you want Plow that is what you've been talking about. Yeah, well, I'll let Paul plow it in. He does that in Romans 5, and he really is a teaser where he said, I'll look at it this morning, 20 times, I think, he brings the Spirit up in Romans 8. So that's where he's going to go with it, as, as it's expressed itself in love and as this life which is now given to us uh, and we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Um, that's where he goes. But I don't think Paul is worried about the Spirit not having equal airtime at this point. I think the Spirit is not jealous of, of Jesus. So. You think there's a little impartation in that? No. You don't think the Holy Spirit in us imparts holiness to us? Um, no. <laughs> that stays outside of it. It's an external work, um, an alien righteousness. Uh, uh, the Spirit has a different, a different role in that. Yep. Um, I know this is this is no. This going to be a lot of repetition here. Um, but now, God has done something which you cannot do, and which not only exceeds your imagination, we couldn't have thought it up. Uh, and through His living and active Word, the Gospel, which gives life and hope and peace and, and, and faith, faith described as being loved by God, that gift of faith gives you the assurance that I can move through this world with all of its troubles, with all of its um, afflictions, with all of its questions. Um, I know that I'm loved by God and that's enough. That deposit is enough. Something like that would be logizomai, being worded. Let me pray. Oh. It's all Christ and not us. This would have a, um, a very strong, um, yeah, it's all Christ. Everything is on Christ's shoulders. Um, and so it's like, well, if Christ doesn't do it, then I'm, I'm toast. I'm, of most, I'm most of all to be pitied if Christ alone isn't the one who does the work. Lord, correct me where I'm wrong um, and strengthen your work. Let it be done in your way um, where we would experience the, uh, the freedom, the peace which passes understanding of being loved in this utterly peculiar way um, and, uh, and let the gifts uh, uh, transfer us to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.